Hi, good evening, um, and welcome here to um, part of our Cambridge University lectures, and I'm absolutely thrilled that we're joined tonight by Sadaf Faruqi, who is one of the world's experts in metabolism and in how that results in diabetes and in how that results in really why we get fat, uh, which is the title of tonight's talk. Um, she is going to lecture for uh, about half an hour and then we'll talk and then we'll give chance for everybody to ask some questions. And just, uh, I, I, apart from when I'm not in Hay, I run something called the London Food Board. So when I knew she was coming, I said, Peter, I want to interview her because it's um, one of the biggest, it's the biggest health problem I think we have at the moment. Is that fair to say? Biggest growing health problem. Um, so, with no more ado, please give her a big Thank welcome. Thank you. So, okay, it's either see me or see the slides. No, I think that's fine. So it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you all for really coming on, on a lovely evening here uh, at the festival. So um, I'm a physician. I look after patients with diabetes um, in my job at Addenbrooke's Hospital. And also as part of my job, I'm interested in trying to find better ways to treat patients with diabetes. And this is type 2 diabetes that generally occurs later in life, different from type 1 diabetes, which we see often in children and young people. And really, when we look at what are the main causes of something like type 2 diabetes, it is clear that weight gain in our population is a major driver. And really, that led me on to my research interest in what it is that makes us gain weight. And this is something that I'd like to discuss with you, and I hope by the end of the session, you'll be thinking about some things that you may not have thought about before. Um, we'll have plenty of time for questions, because it is a, a very topical and an important issue, and often lots of questions come up. Um, but I hope to also show you how collectively, I think, we need to apply some scientific rigor to understanding something like obesity. So this is just a little sketch which really um, denotes the fact that we know that across the board, everybody is getting heavier. And of course, a not a day goes by without us hearing about stories about people who are very heavy. Some of you may remember these series of headlines uh, about a child of the age of three dying from severe obesity. And there was actually a, a real flurry of um, publicity about this case. In fact, the case was even highlighted uh, by the Department of Health at the time of a reporting of a government white paper. But actually, what was really sad about this scenario here was that the universal response to this child's death was one of blame, one of absolutely vitriol towards the parents, who effectively almost had to go into hiding because people had worked out who they were. Um, and actually, this child was a patient of mine. Um, and I was astonished when this appeared in the press, um, particularly because I knew what had caused the problem in this child. So I hope that perhaps when we finish at the end, you might just think a little bit about this case. And I think this is what happens when people are misinformed and don't really understand what's going on and how that can have an impact not only on our understanding and behavior as a society, but on individually how we deal with in, uh, particular people. So there is no doubt that the world is getting heavier. So these kind of figures are, are reported all the time. We know that 25% of people in this country um, are clinically obese. And we define obesity based on a calculation called body mass index, or BMI, which is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared, 
Okay. The reason we have to not just look at weight, we have to look at height as well, is of course people have different frames. You can weigh the same, but if you have quite a big build, that's quite different perhaps if you're a little shorter. So body mass index is a, is a useful rule of thumb for defining obesity. It allows us to compare rates across the world. And when we do that, we find that 20 to 25% of people in this country are clinically obese. And obesity using that same definition is rising across the world. We know that, of course, our friends in the US lead the way, um, but also that certain countries, in particular the Middle East uh, and Southeast Asia, people are becoming increasingly obese. With obesity, of course, come several other health problems, and the commonest of which are type 2 diabetes. And the likely figures are that by 2020, 330 million people around the world will have type 2 diabetes. But being particularly heavy also puts you at risk of other problems, such as heart problems. Even some forms of cancer are more common in people who are overweight. So obesity is a health problem, and it's a health problem of our time. The kind of, some of you will be aware of some of the figures. This is just really to remind me about the fact that children are also getting heavier. It's not quite as the same sort of percentages as in adults, about 10 to 15%. But it is quite clear that children are getting heavier and have been getting heavier over the last 10 years or so. But I think what is often forgotten is that whilst obesity is really becoming a, a major problem, it's not a new problem. What's new is that more and more people are becoming heavier, but there were always some people who were heavy, and there have always been some people who were really heavy, regardless of the environment. So here is a, a statue, which I hope you can see, the Venus of Willendorf, a statue from prehistoric times depicting individuals who were very heavy. And in fact, there are pictures on um, the friezes of the temples of Luxor, uh, in Egypt, showing individuals who are particularly heavy. Often, of course, they were highly regarded um, and, in fact, was a symbol often of wealth. So there were always some people who were particularly heavy. Uh, and, in fact, the ancient physicians recognized that being too heavy was bad for your health. So Hippocrates, in the 5th century BC, actually wrote some very elegant reports of how people who were very heavy often uh, were less fertile, he reported the fact that they may have other health problems, um, including breathing problems, um, and recognized that it was not just about looking too heavy, being too heavy, that there were health problems that go with it. And in fact, diabetes was first linked with weight problems um, by Avicenna, an Arab physician in the 12th century, who first dipped the urine, found it was very sweet, and called this diabetes, and then realized that diabetes was linked to weight problems. And in fact, the very first textbook of obesity was written in the 1800s by an English physician, I'm very proud to say. Um, and the English physician Short, Thomas Short, noticed that it was highly important that we should have a textbook specifically on obesity because it was becoming such an important problem. So this is quite interesting. There were always some people who were particularly heavy, sufficient that there was a textbook in the 18th century. So what does that make us think about the causes of obesity? Okay. And most people think, oh, we, we all know the causes. Um, clearly, it's an individual's lifestyle choice. It's about what you decide to eat, how much activity you do, and if you do the wrong things, then that's the reason that you're obese. And if that's the case, then clearly, obviously, it's, it's your fault. Okay. So there's a, perhaps a, another way to look at it, and I suspect some of the uh, attendees at this festival might fall into this group. 
And we might say, well, hang on, let's just stand back and let's not perhaps blame the individual. Let's think about society and the influences of society, including the fact that we have cheap food available the whole time. It's highly palatable. We want to eat this food. And also that food is aggressively marketed. It's always available. We're, it's being, we're being told about it. Children are being told about it. And that's why we eat more. And of course, we don't have to do as much physical activity because we don't plow the fields, we drive around in our cars, um, and we don't have to do as much at home either. Uh, we're on the computer. And if those, that's the explanation for obesity, then maybe it's society's fault. Um, and then there's a few strange people like myself who say, well, maybe there's some evidence that obesity and weight problems might be determined by genetic factors. That sounds quite strange, because obviously if it's genetic, then it's quite clear it's um, your parents' fault. So let's have a look at the evidence and see what the evidence tells us about how and why people are gaining weight. So this is just a, um, um, a graph based on the epidemiology. So basically to show you two patterns, the blue, the previous distribution, and the red, the current distribution. And what we see is that the average, the mean BMI, has shifted to the right. So the average person is heavier than they were 30 years ago. And I think many of us would recognize that. Certainly, if you look at school photos, you will realize that the average child is heavier than they were 30 years ago. So, so that is quite clear. The, um, sorry, this is not working particularly well. This is, uh, the average has shifted to the right. Also, what we see is that there's a positive skew. So there are a greater proportion of people at this end of the spectrum who are particularly heavy. So what causes these changes? Well, if we just think about the average change, the fact that the average person is heavier than they used to be, what causes that? Well, clearly, our environment is what has changed over the last 15, 20 years, not our genes. But actually, we tend to think that everybody's eating loads, everybody's doing very little exercise, so it's not a surprise. But do the figures add up? Well, actually, if we look at the figures, what we find is it only takes an extra seven calories a day. If we eat seven calories a day more than we burn, and we do that consistently, that would be enough to explain the change in the weight of the population over the last 30 years and the change in the BMI that we now see. So seven calories a day is not very much. It's about a slice of cucumber, which is rather frightening. Okay. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have had that slice. Um, okay. <laughs> I think I had a bit more than the slice, actually. Um, and what this means is that actually for most of us, Despite day-to-day -day fluctuations in the amount of food that we eat and the amount of energy that we burn, there'll be some days that we're really good and some days that we eat too much, our weight tends to remain relatively stable over long periods of time. We have a system that keeps our weight relatively stable. And what's probably happening, though, is that we're pushing that system by just eating a little bit more than we burn. And in fact, it's only a little bit more, but that's enough to cause a change in the average weight of the population. Now, of course, that doesn't explain why some people are gaining a lot more weight than others, uh, and I'll come to that. Now, the reason that our environment is clearly key, and let's uh, you know, when I talk about other factors, I'm, I'm not denying that, but I think what the environment doesn't explain is why some people gain much more weight than others. Because, to be honest, we're all living often in exactly the same environment. We're all susceptible to the same influences. Now, of course, you could say some people will resist those influences and some people will succumb. But I think I want to show you um, some other examples. So firstly, what we now know is that within a given environment, 
geographical environment, social environment, there's a lot of variation in the weight of individuals. Okay? And that variation is strongly driven by our genes. So if we take any two random people in this room and we look at the differences in their adult weight, 40 to 70% of that difference is down to their genes. So that's a pretty major effect. Okay? Now, genes don't just act on their own. They act with our environment, with the food we eat, and with the exercise that we do. Now, what this means is, and you'll all know this, you'll all have friends who seem to be, you know, who can eat what they like and they never put on weight. They don't stay my friends for very long. Um, but there are people who, who, who say that. There are also people who put on weight very easily. Okay? And those differences between individuals are strongly determined by our genes. Now, a couple of scientists, many scientists, have studied this very carefully because they needed to see if you could measure this. And what they did was an ex excellent study in Canada on identical male twins. And they took 20 sets of twins and they actually kept them in a research unit for a year, which is unbelievable, actually. So these people were effectively completely controlled for a year. Everything, they took them on little outings to the cinema, to the park. Um, I mean, they were paid a reasonable amount of money. Um, and what they did was they overfed them by 10%. So they were given more calories than they should have been eating. Everybody gained weight, as you might expect. But the amount of weight people gained was very different. So in a totally controlled setting, where they basically lived with the research team, the amount of weight people gained was very different. But it was very similar for two people who are twins. So the twins did the same thing, but the different sets of twins all differed in how much weight they gained. Now, of course, what they had done was made all these people rather heavy. So they had to ethically help them to lose weight. Uh, and so they put them on a weight restriction diet and they helped them to lose weight. And they lost weight because, again, they were tightly controlled and they couldn't escape. But the amount of weight they lost also differed amongst the sets of twins, but was very similar in two people in a twin pair. And what this and other studies show us is that our genes influence how we respond to the amount of extra food that we're eating and to the amount of activity that we do. So these things don't work the same in everybody. Here's just a little slide showing you how genes influence our weight. So here are identical twins and here are non-identical twins. And you can see for the identical twins, there's a real similarity in their weight and the amount of fat they have and in the distribution of their fat. Whereas in the non-identical twins who share 50% of their genes, there are quite a lot of differences. So there's quite a lot of evidence that genes regulate our weight. We know that our environment is also important and we know that our genes and our environment work together. So the question is, how do these things work? The first thing is we should think about why we should have genes that influence us to gain weight. And this is just a simple cartoon showing that actually it would make a lot of sense for us to have genes that allow us to store energy as fat. So if we assume that we were hunter-gatherers uh, and then we've evolved into this species here, it would have been useful for us to have genes that allowed us, when there wasn't much food around, to be able to store extra calories. And it's likely that those same genes, which were very useful, allowed us to survive and perhaps may have allowed us to live longer, survive famines, uh, are now in a, what we call a maladaptive environment. They're in the wrong environment. And those genes are causing us to store en extra energy as fat when we don't actually need it. 
Where do those genes work? Well, we now know that these genes work uh, in the brain. Now, for those of you who are interested in philosophy, obviously this is Homer. Um, and, um, and, and Homer tells us something we've known for a long time, that the brain is the most important organ. Uh, it's the focus of everything. And actually, we've also known for over 100 years the brain is a critical part for controlling your weight. What we didn't know up until um, the 1990s is how the brain controls your weight. And just to give you a feel for how new this is, when I first started doing this research as a young, enthusiastic um, junior doctor, uh, this is about 15 years ago now, um, we knew nothing about the system that controls weight. Literally, all we knew is this, that it's probably in the brain. And we thought there probably is a system. That's all we knew. This has all come on in the last 15 years, and it's really dramatic what we've discovered. And what we've discovered is that actually we have an entire system for controlling our weight. Just, as we're, just in the same way we have a system for controlling our growth, for controlling reproduction and fertility. It's a sort of classical system that we now learn about, the young medical students and doctors will learn about um, as if it, it, it emerged, um, but it has only emerged over the last 15 years. And this system is centered on the brain, just as Homer says, okay? And the brain receives signals telling us about how much energy we have. So this is a, uh, obviously a picture of the brain, but showing links to two main areas. So first of all, we now know that our fat is actually very important. Our fat, I always knew it, was not just there to store extra calories, okay, and get bigger and bigger. Our fat is there to tell us how much calories we have. Our fat releases hormones into the bloodstream which act in the brain. And one of those key hormones was discovered in 1994 by colleagues in New York, and that hormone is called leptin. And leptin is a hormone that is made by our fat. We all have it. And it tells us how much fat we have. And the reason we have a signal to, to our brain is actually makes a lot of sense. Because what happens is if you don't eat anything for five days, okay, your leptin level will fall by half. Now, you can imagine how hungry you'll be after five days. You'll be pretty hungry, okay? And your brain will get a signal saying, my leptin level has fallen, I need to do something, okay? Obviously, it's important part of your preservation, your survival, that your brain should tell you to do something. And what your brain tells you to do is to eat food, to go out, find food, and eat food. And it also tells you to store energy. Don't burn too much energy. Slow down your metabolism. Slow down your metabolic rate. Don't go having babies right now. It's not a good idea. Shut down your reproductive system and shut down your immune system because actually that takes up a lot of energy. And we now know that actually this is a signal that we all have. This is part of our normal physiology. So leptin is pretty important, but also leptin doesn't vary over long periods of time. Our fat accumulates gradually. We also get signals that are much more short-term, and those are signals from the gut, from the stomach when you eat a meal. When you've had a really nice meal and your stomach is very full, your stomach stretches, it sends signals to the brain. It also releases hormones which act in the brain and tell you that you've eaten and that you're full. So it's this sort of combination of signals that our brain receives, and our brain has to integrate it all and regulate our weight and our appetite. But also to give you an idea, you will know that, of course, if we had this perfect system, we would all be the perfect weight and we wouldn't have to do anything. But this system is not only not just perfect, but we can override that system through our conscious control. Okay? And people often say, this is a bit strange. How does this fit? Because if we can override it, how do you know there's a system? And the example I often give is that of breathing. 
Okay. So we have a system for breathing. You know, we don't think about breathing. We just breathe. We breathe because our body senses the oxygen levels in our blood and tells us you need more oxygen, you should breathe. And that is happening automatically all the time. Now, you know that, of course, sometimes we can consciously hold our breath. We can stop breathing for a reason, okay? But we can't keep doing that, okay? Uh, and also, if we take away the conscious control, we go back to the automatic control that is governed by our systems in the body. And the same actually now appears to be true for eating and for the regulation of weight. Now, again, our understanding of how do we consciously control these systems for eating, again, is very new. So this is a, a picture I've taken from a paper in 2005, and this was in a journal called Science, which is one of the world's leading scientific journals. And you can see that despite all the sort of the, the fancy circuits and the, and the hormones, uh, our understanding of the conscious control was depicted by a piece of chocolate cake. Um, because up until 2005, that's pretty much all we knew. So we knew that sometimes chocolate cake can do this, um, and that chocolate cake, I wasn't the author of the article, um, <laughs> that sometimes chocolate cake can override these physiological signals and make us eat it. Um, but we didn't really know how. Um, and now we know a little bit about how. So how do we find these things? Well, people were doing lots of work over many years on mice that spontaneously become heavy. So these were mice that basically are born of normal weight and then rapidly, in a few weeks, for, no reason, for some reason that nobody understood, become very heavy. And it actually took developments in technology to work out what was the problem with these mice. And the problem with these mice at the top there is they were lacking that hormone leptin. So that really led to the discovery of leptin, which I've mentioned to you already, is the hormone that we all have that regulates our weight over long periods of time. The reason this was important is it basically, if you like, was a, a breakthrough, and it may yet result in a Nobel Prize for the, for the person who did this, is that this was a breakthrough in our understanding of the regulation of weight, because it meant that we had some idea what these molecules and these hormones really are. So is this relevant to human beings? Because, of course, you can find these things in mice, but does this mean anything for people? Uh, and this is, I guess, where I came into the story, because this guy had just discovered leptin in mice, uh, and people were trying to work out what leptin does in, in normal people. And I was looking after some children. And these are two children, and you can see they're very, very heavy. Okay? The other kids in this family were entirely normal weight. The parents are normal weight, and the parents are, cannot believe what is happening to their children. For some reason, these two children, brother and sister, are massively heavy. There's a, a one-year-old weighing 18, 19 kilos, uh, a three-year-old weighing 36 kilos. Okay. These kids were severely obese, and when we saw them, they'd had lots of other tests done by lots of other people. No one knew what was going on, and people assumed because that's all we knew, that this was what we called simple obesity. And the parents were told, just stop feeding your children so much. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? These children are so, you know, it's, we don't understand it. Our other children are normal weight. So I went on to see whether there could remotely be a chance that this was anything to do with leptin, because those mice were very heavy when they lacked leptin. And we measured leptin in these children and found they were completely lacking the hormone leptin. So just like the mice, they were missing the hormone leptin. And the reason they were missing the hormone leptin is that the gene that makes leptin was defective and wasn't working. So this, if you like, was the first proof that a problem in a single gene could cause a person to become really heavy. It was also the first proof that the hormone leptin controls weight in all of us. 
Of course, I happen to know that when they gave leptin to those mice, it corrected their weight problem. So we were able to start the first clinical trial giving these children injections of leptin. And on the right there, that's the same two children a year after treatment with leptin. So really quite remarkable. It restores their weight to normal. And now, of course, you can see they're entirely normal. They cause absolute havoc when they come and see me. They run around. Um, but this is just a, a really nice example of how discovering something scientifically can, can, can obviously help patients, but also I think how we can learn a great deal about something which I guess probably, if I'm honest, many people had really ignored beforehand, and that is what causes some people to be particularly heavy. So in treating these children, of course, we got the opportunity to, 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 to keep an eye on them and to work out what was going on and what happens in the body when the body is lacking leptin. And what we noticed is that in the absence of leptin, these kids are incredibly hungry. Okay? They want to eat food the whole time. Now, if you can imagine, I told you that if you, if you don't eat for five days, your leptin level falls by half. Okay? You still have some leptin. These kids have none. Their brain thinks they're going to starve to death. So their brain tells them to do things to stop them from starving to death. And what happens is they go looking for food. They want to have food the whole time. They're driven to eat. They're very hungry. What's also interesting, and I'll show you in a second, I think we understand why, is I found it amazing that they really wanted to eat food, but also they didn't really, it didn't really matter what kind of food. It had to be food, but they would eat hospital food. You know, that was, that was okay. They would eat Rivita, which I found bizarre, actually. So that was one of my important observations, was that the lack of leptin causes this drive to eat and this desire for any kind of food. The most amazing thing to see is when we give these kids back leptin after four days, there's a dramatic change in their behavior. So now they don't look for food as much. In fact, they turn it away. And also they become selective. So now they just want the cake and they don't want the other things, which I consider a more normal response. Okay. <laughs> So just to cut a long story short, we've then gone on to show over a number of years that leptin, made by your fat, goes to your brain, triggers a set of chemicals in your brain which ultimately control your appetite. And defects in several of these chemicals in the brain can cause people to gain weight. And what this tells us is that actually there is a circuit in our brain for controlling weight. And of course, as you can imagine, given that controlling our appetite and our weight is fundamental to our survival, that circuitry is quite complicated. So I want to go back to my little comment about Rivita and the fact that these kids like Rivita. And one of the fun things, I think, sometimes in, in research is that you can observe something, but you don't really understand why it happens. And then some years later, you can come up with some tools that allow you to study it and work it out. And so we came back to the Rivita question, as I call it. I'm going to be sued by them one of these days. Um, but what we wanted to do is say, why do these kids really like food like Rivita, and why does it change with leptin? What does that mean? That's not just about driving you to eat. It's something about how f which food you like. Okay? And so what we want to do is look at the response in the brain, and particularly something called food reward, which is how much you like certain food. Why do we like cake? Why do we like burgers? Why do we like sugar? Why do we like other things? And most of us normal people don't like broccoli, don't like vegetables, things like that. Okay. So mm, maybe some people do like broccoli. Okay. <laughs> And so what we did was we used functional MRI, okay? Now, this is a regular MRI scan, just as you might have to look at the anatomy of the brain. But as well as that, if when someone's lying in a scanner, you get them to do something, you can see which parts of the brain light up, 
Okay? So, for example, my colleagues who study uh, dementia would look at people who are lying in a scanner and they will get them to do memory tasks. And then certain parts of the brain won't light up in people with dementia versus people who don't have dementia. So we showed people pictures of food versus not food as a control. That was a very sophisticated uh, design. Um, and then we said, okay, not all food is the same. So maybe we can show people burgers versus broccoli and look at differences in the kinds of food. And to cut a long story short, what we see is that when the kids are not treated, they're lacking leptin, okay? They like all kinds of food. Whenever they see any food, whether it's a raw egg or broccoli or a courgette, whatever it is, they see huge parts of their brain light up with food. And those parts of the brain are the reward centers of the brain. These are the parts of the brain that light up with other exciting activities, with smoking, with the taking of drugs. Um, all of these parts of the brain are your reward or pleasure centers of the brain, and they light up with food for these guys. And after seven days of treatment, that goes down. And of course, we observed uh, a change in their behavior. So in the absence of leptin, they really like cake. They score it 10 out of 10. But they really like cauliflower. They score that 10 out of 10. How amazing is that? And then after seven days, they haven't lost any weight yet, but the leptin is working. We now see that they kind of quite like the cake, but now they score the cauliflower 0 out of 10. Okay. And what's really interesting is that this change in behavior is specific to food. Before treatment, they can tell the difference between a Ferrari and a Mini. They can tell the difference between something really exciting and colorful and a plain landscape. They can differentiate things, but not for food. And what this tells us is something that's so important for all of us, because after treatment, their response is the same as your response would be if I put you in the scanner. And if I put you in the scanner, what will happen is, if you haven't eaten anything and you're fasted, okay, and I show you nice pictures of food, these parts of your brain will light up. Okay? And they'll tell you, oh, that looks nice. Okay. It actually shows us that this behavior that we have, that we quite like that food, is biological. And this is something really important to get over. The fact that we like certain foods is encoded in our brain. Of course, how it gets there is another thing. We can come to that in the questions, perhaps. But this is telling us that we have a system that not only tells us how much to eat and when to eat and what to eat, but also how much we like food. And that system is in part controlled by leptin. So just to give you another idea, I mean, basically, we've studied lots of people who have different genes controlling their weight and influencing their weight. And we find that people have different types of weight problems. Not everybody who's overweight is the same. Um, there's another gene where people get very heavy, are very tall. Um, this is a, not a patient. Um, and um, people are big boned. Okay, so this is another gene called MC4. It's the commonest gene causing weight problems. And here people are very tall, very big, often look like rugby players. Um, and they are big boned. Their bones are very dense uh, and they have a lot of muscle mass. So a very different picture. One of the things that we notice about these guys who are very tall and very big is that they said, I really like you know, um, certain types of food. Difficult to say because they've got a big appetite. So how do you know whether it's a type of food or the appetite? So again, we did a sort of experiment. So what we did was we wondered if there was something about this part of the brain that influences um, how much you like fat. Okay. Now, it's quite difficult to test this. When people do this, uh, nutritionists do this kind of study, they might give people um, a bagel and then a bagel with cream cheese. And if you prefer the bagel with cream cheese, they might say, oh, that's, you're preferring fat. But of course, those two things are quite different. You need to do something that looks identical. 
So we came up with a rather sophisticated design involving chicken, korma, and rice. Um, I did lots of experimentation in this area myself, and um, <laughs> I found this to be the very best experiment. Um, and what we found was, because of course with the sauce, you can hide various things. And we were able to make up some chicken, korma, and rice that had 20% fat, 40% fat, and 60% fat. Okay? But it looks identical. And if you taste it, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell which one you like. Okay? And then we left people in a room, normal weight people, obese people, and people with this specific gene. Okay? And we left them with rather large trays of this. And we said, have, have whatever you want. Try each one and, and see what you'd eat. And what's really interesting is that people with this particular gene specifically ate more of the high-fat food. So even though they can't tell the difference and they don't know why they're different, something is happening when they're tasting this high-fat chicken korma that is probably lighting up their brain and telling them to eat more of it. And this just gives us a little clue that we actually, you know, what we eat is not just determined by conscious control, that the, some of the foods that we eat activate pathways in our brain that make us want to eat more of them. We tried to test this further. I do like my chocolate milkshake. With what we call the chocolate milkshake experiment. So again, we have people volunteering to come to us in the scanner. And when they're in the scanner, we have a little straw type of mechanism linked to a tube. And we're giving them high-fat versus low-fat milkshake. Okay? They don't know we're, what we're doing. They just know we're trying different drinks. Um, and they, we tested them beforehand to make sure they're identical. And when we do, I did test them as well. They were fine. Um, and what we find is, uh, don't worry about the text here, is that actually a very specific area of your brain, again involved in pleasure and reward, lights up with high-fat milkshakes. So even if you don't know what you're having, these parts of the brain light up. We then did a more complicated design where we're trying to see if you kind of get used to things after a while. Okay, do you learn that this is good stuff? Okay. And what we did is, but again, people didn't know we were doing it, is that we paired them with a shape. So, for example, while you got a squirt of high-fat milkshake, you were seeing a blue triangle. And then while you were um, getting a squirt of um, low-fat milkshake, you were seeing a red circle. Okay. And then after a while, even if we don't give you anything, but we show you um, a blue triangle, you suck more because you want it. So your brain has quickly learnt that actually I like this high-fat food stuff. I want more of it. And this, I think, is beginning to show us, and it's very early, we haven't even published this yet, but it's beginning to show us how we learn about food and the foods that we like, and that these are things that are encoded in our brain. Okay, so this is just to show you a little bit, a flavor of how we are approaching this, is that we're realizing that this area is something that's really not had much work done on it, but is clearly critical to understanding what we do when we're making choices about the food that we eat, how much food we eat, and how that affects our weight. So we're doing lots of things in the lab to find genes and look in cells, but we've um, recently got funding to build a, a new unit to undertake more of these studies into eating behavior. And the whole point is that we need to understand these things better if we're going to find very rational ways to help people. And we then need to use the information to undertake interventions, um, both in a controlled setting, but also in a free living uh, setting in our society. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of a clue uh, about some of the other work that I think will come up and will change a little bit how we think about weight problems, is that of all the kids that I look after, I look after many now uh, around the world who come to us 
for investigation for genes that might be causing their weight problems, and these are some of the kids on the left here, you can see that these kids are very heavy. There is something going on that is causing this, is that we're now using the latest technologies to try and identify new genes. And what we're finding, actually, is there are hundreds of genes, not just a few genes. But there is also the same probably for asthma, for, di for regular diabetes, for blood pressure. There are many, many genes that influence why some person gains weight versus not, um, not so much. And really, the challenge for us is to work out what all these genes mean, what, all, what do they all do, and how might we use that information to better help people. So I'm just going to finish really with a simple message that, yes, we clearly should eat a little bit less, and yes, we should exercise a bit more. But I think we also need to understand a little bit more about our biology if we're really going to help people lose weight and if we're going to try and restrict the number of complications that people get when they are overweight. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much. That's incredibly interesting. What I'm a bit puzzled by, though, is that presumably we, all through history, we've always had people, even though we didn't know it, who had this genetic problem. So have there always been a small percentage who get... I mean, the, the cases you showed were fantastically fact, as against just a, uh, a society getting a bit bigger. So I think... And I think we definitely view it as that. There are sort of... I think people often mix the two up. So I think yeah. you know, as a society, we're getting heavier, but often we're just getting a little bit heavier than we used to be. Um, but there have always been a group of people who are particularly heavy, would have had these types of genetic disorders. However, there's probably a group in the middle who may not have been that heavy previously, but now because of the environmental factors, they're coming to light, so to speak. So there are people who have genes that are having a major effect not as severe, perhaps, as that, but who are now particularly heavy because of the environment in which we live. So are you saying that you, you think pretty much all cases of um, BMIs that are 30 or over are being caused through some genetic thing? So I think that the severe obesity, probably more than 30, I think maybe the 40, 50, is, okay. is very strongly driven by genes. I think in all of us, our genes influence our weight, but those genes in most people are having a mild effect, okay? But they still influence your weight. It's, it's, if you like, it's not whether you have genes or don't, because we all have the genes. We all have the genes that regulate weight. In some people, those genes aren't working as well, and if they're not working as well, they're more likely to be not working as well in people who are very heavy. But, but there's been such a I mean, coincidence of weight gain with the introduction of fast food, with the fact that, I mean, okay, in the work that I do in London, and we look at, say, to children who are overweight, and we find that um, those kids are having a breakfast, they're having a lunch or a packed lunch at school, because the fast food on the high streets is so incredibly cheap, and, and for 50p in mm -hmm. some places, you can get chicken and chips, and then they're going home and have another meal. So they're effectively having four meals a day, and they're probably knocking back well over 3,000 calories, if not more, because that chicken and chips is 
six or seven hundred calories just in, and that's just your snack on your way home. So they are just eating a lot more. I mean, genes or no genes, these kids are piling on the calories. So, so absolutely right, they're eating a lot more. So there's no doubt about that. They're eating a lot more than seven calories a day, your, your slice so of cucumber. Seven, no, that's right. <laughs> so... Yes, they are, but so the seven calories a day is the excess compared to what they burn. So there's, there's several things that don't quite add up. So yes, those kids are eating loads, okay? But what I would say is all the kids that are eating like that are not all getting very heavy, okay? They're getting a bit heavier, okay? And that leads to why, as a, as a population, now you could say, why aren't they all getting really massively mm. heavy? Because you're right, they are eating seven ca 700 calories in a single chicken nuggets and chips. Okay, so actually what happens is we manage to deal with some of that excess. Okay, we manage to burn it. Okay, um, now you could say, hang on, they don't look like they're running the equivalent of 700 calories worth of running. So basically what it means is it's not as simple as they're eating 700 calories, therefore they're all going to get heavy. Okay, some of the kids who eat 700 calories on the chicken and chips on the way home will get heavy. Many of them will get a bit heavier, some of them will get very heavy, and some of them actually will handle the 700 mm -hmm. calories. So you think that, uh, that the, your research at some point may find something that you could give kids or give anybody that would do the, le the leptin trick um, if that is the thing that you discover that you need to do? So I think the thing is, you know, there's no doubt that we have to, because the kids who have the genes who are having a major effect is still a small number compared to the most of the population. So for most of the population, for most of the kids, we have to do exactly what you were saying at the very beginning, is we have to tackle what they're eating, mm. how much activity they're doing, okay? So there's no doubt we have to, absolutely have to do those things, and those things, of course, are difficult to do. But we have to, as a society, change how much food is available, and also knowing that the food isn't just, you know, as I showed you, how much high-fat food can make you want to eat more food. So we've got to think about the type of food that we make and produce and provide. So yes, we've got to change those things. There's no doubt about that. Because if we can change those things, actually we can make a difference to the population as a whole. Okay? What I'm saying is that we should a little bit separate that. We've still mm. got to do it from how we have to look after and yeah. work out and help people who get very heavy. And I think the people who get very heavy are the people where we need to understand biologically what's going on and then find ways to treat them. I'm wondering whether the things we learn from people who are very heavy, like the food and the chicken korma and the milkshake, might actually give us some neat ideas as to what to do about food for other people. Like? Like whether we need to think about how, you know, how much, not just how much um, fat is in food, but how we formulate it, how it's delivered to the brain. Because if one of the things that's happening, and we can, if you like, try and nail it down in people who are very heavy, is, is the brain getting a signal telling you as soon as you eat that this is high fat, this is yummy, this is really nice, I want to eat more. If we can understand how that happens and why that happens, can we trick the brain so the brain doesn't necessarily get that signal? Can we alter the food so that it still tastes quite nice, but actually it doesn't send off those same signals telling us to eat more? So this is about being a little bit more, trying to encourage a little bit more understanding into why we eat the way that we do, um, and what it is about, uh, you know, why don't those kids go and buy a bag of broccoli on the way home? Sure, I mean that, which, which is an unlikely. And even if it costs the same as the chicken and yeah, chips, yeah, I know they're not going to buy it. Buy no, no, I, I, I do see that, but it. 
it, it is as though you're, you're... I'm going to throw it open to everybody mm. else when I've asked you this bit, but it's as though you're almost trying to say, we've got this uh, food... Well, I think we have a food industry that is about making money and not about making people healthy, and that you're sitting here as medicine saying, well, we'll try and kind of get around that situation, whereas if we went back sort of before... I mean, before about 1975, 76, when we started a really big rush of processed food, unbelievably few people were, had weight problems. So and maybe you had still had the very, very big person. So you're right. We still had the very, very big people. Um, so I'm not saying that we don't um, ignore the food industry. Clearly, we, we have to deal with all of these things. Uh, we know how hard that has been. So what I'm saying is, yes, we've got to do that. But I think we've got to also think about the biology and the science. You feel confident that you're going to get there? Um, I feel confident that we're going to learn an awful lot more. Um, because I think, as I showed you, you know, we've learned an awful lot more just within the last five to ten years. It's amazing. Okay. Do come in and... Um, great. Oh, loads of people. All right. Where is the mics? Um, uh, right. Start here. The lady, lady there. And is there a second mic? Okay. Can you give that to the gentleman there? Right. We have two, and then we'll come along. Okay. Hi. Hello. Um, you talked about there being the very heavy people and them having some severe sort of genetic differences. Of the people in the middle who've got something different about their genes, what proportion of those people do you think physical activity can basically nullify those differences? So we don't know. Um, so uh, the simple answer is actually that's a really important question, and yet we don't know. What we do know is that if we really control physical activity can be very effective in some people, but is not very effective in other people. And even when we do it in a really controlled way where we can know exactly how much people are doing, its effects vary. So the simple answer is we don't know, but that would be a really important thing for us to work out. Okay. Gentlemen there. Um, I live the in the Rondo Valley where uh, obesity is higher than the national average. So there are other factors going on, such as uh, the impact of deprivation and um, uh, self-esteem mm. and all sorts. So there's loads of factors, isn't, mm. isn't there? But, um, there's there's so many factors here. You know, this is one factor you're talking about, and you didn't mention sugar at all uh, that I could hear. And in the 70s, we we had this this mantra of a low fat, fat diet, which we've been following since, to no great effect in terms of reducing obesity. Um, so one is one question is about why did you choose, or in this study, why have you not looked at sugar? And the other is. As a whole, would, could, you, could you estimate how much the genetics is um, causing the obesity epidemic, really? Okay. So those are quite complex questions. So the first thing is about sugar. So I didn't talk about sugar. You're right. Um, we did do sugar in the chicken korma experiment. I just didn't show the data. It was an eaten mess type of dessert. Um, and in this particular study, we didn't find any difference between individuals in how much sugar they prefer. What we see with sugar preference is what people have shown before, is that if you go from no sugar to some sugar, people like 20% sugar, some people like 40% sugar, and then after that it tails off. Actually, if it's too sweet, people don't like it. Uh, it was actually the same in lean people, in overweight people, and in people with this gene problem. Um, so I guess that was quite useful because it showed us that there may be pathways that rely on how we sense fat, and probably other pathways that rely on how we sense sugar. Okay. Um, we do know that there are very clear pathways in the brain 
for sensing and making you want to eat more sugar. And it's not just about the taste. There's something about the chemical in, in sugar. We also know that a lot of the fizzy drinks and other sugary foods, it's actually not a type of sugar our brains are used to. So the high fructose corn syrup and those kinds of things are things that our brains aren't used to and don't necessarily have a good system for dealing with. So, so the sugar question is a really complicated one, and I think that um, there's a bit of hype around it. I don't think at the moment the science is, is good enough, but we do know, no, there's no doubt, that obviously high sugar is probably doing more than just the calories. Okay. Um, so your other question was about what, how much is the genetic effect? So that's a really difficult one. I think we know that genes influence the difference. Where we can put the figures is down to how much of a person's weight is influenced by their genes, and it's about 40%. Okay? Um, that doesn't mean that you, you know, that doesn't simply translate to, okay, 60% is the environment, um, because they act together. Um, but it's probably for most people at the most about 40%. Okay, lovely. Person in the middle. Uh, when you say that um, some people who eat 700 calories extra just handle it, what do you mean? Are you saying that there are people who have fast metabolisms and others with slow? So anecdotally, we think they must do because there are people who eat a lot and don't put on so much weight. Um, and after getting over my um, natural resistance to this, I've decided I ought to study that. Um, and so we're actually now doing a very big study uh, of recruiting thin people. And we're recruiting people who are thin, particularly thin, uh, a BMI less than 18, so very thin, but don't have eating disorders or anorexia or do not have other medical problems causing their thinness. Because I think anecdotally, we know, you know people who eat no. a lot and can't put on weight, people often say they have hollow legs, um, that phrase. Um, as yet, no one has proved a reason for that. Um, but I think we're pretty keen to look into it. So we're going to recruit 2,000 thin people across the UK and study them, uh, both genetically and in their brain, and try and see if we can understand some of these differences. Fantastic. Lady there with the mic. Hello. Um, my question is mainly about appetite. Um, you touched on it, saying there's a genetic link. I wonder if you could expand on whether there are any other factors that influence appetite and also whether there's a role of hormones to be played in appetite and obesity. Yes, yeah, so appetite is very complex and I think what we've discovered is that you know our findings have led us to the study of appetite. So hormones clearly play a role, leptin is one, there are several others. Um, we know of course that certain foods we eat also play a role but also that things in our environment play a role. So for example once you learn that the golden arches of McDonald's are associated with yummy food the golden arches will make you salivate and make you want to eat, regardless of whether you're anywhere near yummy food. So children who are given carrot sticks in a bag that's got a McDonald's logo on it will rate them as more tasty than carrot sticks in a plain bag. Is that true? Yep. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. And what it shows us is that actually it's a learned response. So learning and behaviour, and actually now we can measure that and how that happens, um, and we can kind of make people do it, um, trick them into doing it. Um, but that is a learned biological response, and we now know the parts of the brain where that happens. So appetite is really complicated and um, is influenced by many, many things. And I think trying to understand how that works will be pretty important. So people study, for example, things called priming, 
which is whether um, if you have a sign on the door of the butcher's shop that tells you this is whether you're going to buy more when you go in. You know, these are the kind of things that people in marketing, of course, have looked at for a long time. Uh, but I think scientifically, we've not really understood them. Lady here. Um, can I just say, well, I love broccoli, for a start. Okay. <laughs> Come and see me afterwards. And I actually don't, I, I don't like chocolate or cake yes. either. So. so people like you do exist. <laughs> and, Would you um, want to join? <laughs> yeah, Maybe she thin. could join your I'm trial. Not, yes. I'm not super thin either. Yeah. Uh, but actually, what I want to ask you, it's a bit of a theory that's got me thinking. In the same way with people with type 1 diabetes, they have no insulin production. Um, and so, and that's kind of a minority. But the type two diabetes has come by through insulin resistance, yes. mainly through diet, etc. Is it possible that leptin you could actually start to get a resistance to it? So that's a very good question, and yes, that is the case. So you know, these kids are very rare. There are only a small number of people who are very heavy. For most people who struggle with their weight, uh, they have plenty of leptin, but it's not working. So actually, they're resistant in their brain to the effects of leptin. Um, so you're absolutely right. So actually giving regular people who are overweight more leptin doesn't do anything because they're resistant to it. So finding ways to deal with that uh, is quite important. Uh, we don't know why it happens. Actually, we probably think something occurs when you gain weight that makes your brain resistant. Okay. Um, lady at the back there. Um, following what you were saying about uh, fizzy drinks and that we don't appear to have uh, control mechanisms in, in relation to fizzy drinks because they're, probably because they're artificial and new to us and all the rest of it, does that mean that we're all in the same genetic mess with regard to fizzy drinks? We're all equally genetically unable to cope? Uh, we if don't... that is right, what can we learn from that? So I think we don't know the specific answer to your question. Um, I think at the moment no one has shown genetically that some people... Pref no one has shown any genetic differences. At the moment that doesn't mean that there are no differences. Um, but I suspect it will be close to impossible to, to, to identify them because um, so far the evidence is that there are not genetic differences that influence it and actually across the board that we don't have a very good way of dealing with them in our brain. Um, but I think we probably need to work out specifically what it is about the fizzy drinks um, that we can't handle or can't deal with. Okay. Um, gentleman there. Hello. Uh, down here. Oh, yes, hello. Uh, if you raise your metab metabolic rate by exercise and reducing the amount of fat you have putting on muscle, what does that do to the percentage of fat your body stores from your food? So if you raise your metabolic rate and you keep it, if you can raise it persistently over time and your system is functioning well, you will lose fat mass. Okay? You need to have an intact system for that to happen. So for example, one easy way to explain that is that the leptin kids, not only are they driven to eat, but they actually cannot burn fat because you need to have leptin to burn fat as well. So th there may be reasons why some people, even if they do the same amount of exercise, don't lose the same amount of weight. Uh, and it will be about how effectively our brain picks up the exercise signal and translates that into a signal to tell us to burn fat. So at the moment, nothing has been found that says this gene or this pathway does that. 
but we do know that there are big differences between people when they're totally controlled in terms of how much fat they lose for a given amount of exercise. Okay. Gentleman right at the back. Oh, hello. Sorry, um, lady at the back. It's all right, it's fine. Um, <laughs> by the way, I like Wrong broccoli way. as well. Oh, but okay. It doesn't seem to have done me a lot of good. Um, the food companies who make things like Doritos and Pringles, etc., are they aware of this work and do they deliberately, cynically manipulate the lighting up bit parts of our brain? And there's a fad at the moment for diets where you fast two days out of five a week. I'm not sure from your talk if that sounds that actually that might work. So... It's difficult to know whether the food companies are specifically aware of this. They have not published a single study uh, that looks at these things. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that they haven't done the studies. Um, they may well have done the studies, um, but one of the major challenges is, of course, whereas we have to do the studies and publish our findings and say how we got to them, they do not. Um, they like to attend meetings at which people like myself present, um, but we don't see any of that data. So um, I couldn't tell you, but I suspect that they will have um, clearly and carefully researched the effects of the food that, foods that they produce. Um, the second question was to do with... Um, remind me? No, we're OK. We, is it? Oh, five and two, OK. So... Um, yeah, I mean, certainly our, at the moment, there, nobody has done an equivalent study to see how that affects on the short, in the short term. Um, you might argue, I would agree that, you know, our work would suggest that it wouldn't particularly work. Um, it may work for some people, if, particularly if they're eating quite a lot of extra calories, and it may be one way of them over time reducing their total caloric intake. Um, so it may work as a way that you can handle a reduction in total caloric intake, uh, because you just got to worry about those two days. Right. Um, but there isn't, at the moment, any other reason to think that it does something specific. Okay. Lady yeah. here. So, just here. So, I've, yeah. I've moved one step further from the lady over there, and I'm sure that the companies know all of these things. And my question is, do you think in 20 years' time we'll be talking about big food in the way that we talk about big tobacco now, and saying that they knew all along that what they were doing was bad for us, um, but they carried on anyway and suppressed the data. Yeah. And just as a sort of quick comment, I, I'm a doctor myself and have spent many um, years trying to lose weight unsuccessfully and telling my patients to um, eat less and exercise more while failing to do the same myself despite going to medical school. And then last year had thyrotoxicosis and lost a stone in a month despite eating exactly the same amount mm. of food. And it's clear both from my own personal experience and from everything I've read and the patients I've seen that there is so much more to it than just sitting across the desk from somebody and saying, all you need to do is eat broccoli and not eat chocolate cake and everything will be fine. And I'm afraid that's obviously bollocks. And I'm so pleased. <laughs> I'm so pleased that people like you are doing this kind of research to try and make it make sense. Yeah, I think that's the kind of bottom line, is to understand why people are different um, and to actually to try and use some of that understanding to try and find better ways to help different groups of people, um, knowing that actually we've been given the same messages and um, they may work for some people but not for all. Um, so I would you know, echo this finding. In terms of the you know, comment about food companies, um, I mean, you know, there is no doubt that there is a huge amount of money and effort put into the development of food. Um, they have tools and things that I can only dream of. 
um, and I, you know, and I don't have. Um, so in a way, we're starting from scratch and having to work out what the evidence is, even though I would also guarantee that the evidence is already there. Um, so um, there is, you know, at the moment, no way around that, other than trying to perhaps push the science and push the understanding and get it out in the open. Okay. Um, I'll take that one last question, but I'm afraid that will be the last. If you can keep it short, because it says it's the end of our session. Yeah, it's short. Um, when people go through puberty, does the amount of um, leptin produced Where are you? by Wave fat... Wave at me. Right at the very back in the middle. Oh, there you are. Hello. When people go through puberty, does the amount of leptin produced in fat go down and the, metabol and the metabolic rate go up? So in puberty, certain things definitely change. Uh, no one has shown that the amount of leptin you produce changes uh, because no one has particularly measured that. Uh, but we do know that before people go into puberty, there is a period of leptin resistance. So even with the kids, when I'm treating them, as they come into puberty, I have to massively increase the dose. So clearly, changes in leptin and its response do occur during puberty. And changes in our fat and therefore in our leptin are probably one of the reasons why kids are going into puberty earlier. Um, so the fact that we're getting heavier and kids are getting heavier is definitely a major reason why kids are going into puberty earlier, uh, and that is to do with leptin being the signal that the brain picks up. Um, oh. But there are also other changes like insulin resistance that occur around the time of puberty too. Well, I'm really sorry, because I know we could probably sit here for at least another half hour and take more questions, and I'm sorry we have to stop, and I'm sorry we haven't got a book of yours that we could go and buy, because we'd all <laughs> like to know about this. But um, I forgot to say to start with that Sadaf's um, first lot of research was into cot death, and the work that she did when she was still a student um, has changed and saved an enormous amount of babies, and has been completely instrumental. And that was... Uh, one of the reasons why she got into research, and I think we're very lucky that you're doing what you're doing because it clearly needs people like you giving it this kind of attention. So thank you so much for coming to Hay tonight and sharing your knowledge with us, at least the amount we were able to get in an hour because I'd love to keep you here for longer, but I can't. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.